Our scripture today comes from Mark 13, beginning with verse 24, and I'm going to read all the way until 33, a little bit longer. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you gather us here today to hear your word. Take all of our hopes, all of our anxieties, all of our distractions, and help calm us within and without so that we might hear the message you have for us today. Amen. Reading the Gospels is mystifying sometimes, if not most of the time. The way that Jesus speaks in parables and proverbs is much more difficult to understand than his actions. His ministry sends an unequivocal message to his disciples, which includes us, to feed the poor, to heal the sick, to free the prisoner, to love the stranger, and to welcome the outcast. But sometimes, and especially in Mark, which we will be exploring from this beginning of the year throughout uh, year B of our lectionary, Jesus seems to speak in enigmas and contradictions. Often the disciples only understand part of what he says to them at any given time. And I'm not sure if today we understand Jesus better with the benefit of years of scholarly research or worse because we are removed from the context of first century Judaism by about 2,000 years. We learn in biblical studies that if experts are looking at two different writings of the same passage, often the text that is judged to be more authentic is the one that is more challenging to read or understand. One of the best examples of this is the entire Gospel of Mark. It is the first Gospel written. It is short and sweet. It includes a lot of weird details that the other Gospel writers decided to edit out and is missing some of our favorite stories from the other Gospels. I often choose my preaching text by this same method. I'd rather wrestle with a challenging text and come out with more questions than answers, rather than preach on a text with a clear-cut meaning, although it is a shorter sermon. Our passage today comes from a much longer narrative in Mark, 
that begins in chapter 11 with a Jesus story that has vexed me for most of my life. The youth know it. We love to talk about it. And we often refer to it as the hangry Jesus story. Hangry is a combination of hungry and angry. It goes like this. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. After this, he goes and he drives everyone out of the temple, all the merchants and the leaders. And when they leave the temple, they pass back by the fig tree. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And then Jesus tells them that prayer can accomplish anything. Now, there is a scholarly and perfectly reasonable explanation for this story. Long story short, the fig tree was seen as a symbol for Israel. And Jesus curses it as a way of condemning the leaders of the temple. It's a reversal of Jeremiah 8, when the wicked people of Israel were punished with a famine of fruit, including figs. But this time, the symbol condemns the religious leaders, as Jesus often criticized them. The problem is, if you don't know about the symbolism of figs, or the prophet Jeremiah, specifically that chapter, Jesus comes off as angry, irrational, and impulsive, especially with the detail that is only in Mark, that it wasn't even the season for figs. On its face, the message that Jesus gives his disciples is, if you're hungry, curse an innocent tree, because we can do anything through the power of prayer. I will say, I don't believe that Jesus really cursed a literal tree. I'm pretty sure that he was an environmentalist. He walked everywhere. Many times it's confusing, if not downright irresponsible, to take Jesus' words at face value, even when he's not speaking in parables. The Gospels were created from stories that were passed down to their writers, details that might be misremembered or embellished, and each Gospel writer has their own audience and their own interpretation of events. So we have to put on our reading glasses and look, the look at the difficult passages through multiple lenses again and again. That's the beautiful thing about a sacred text. It can speak to you in different ways every time you read it, depending on your emotions, on recent events, or just a different turn of phrase that strikes you. This is certainly true of our scriptures and other scriptures, and I've found even secular texts to be sacred in this sense. Our passage for Advent 1 is complex. It blends genres and mixes metaphors, even directly contradicting itself. And it does require us to read outside of the verses I listed. So feel free to read along. I think it's on page 50 in the Pew Bibles. Mark 13 is often referred to as the little apocalypse. Like most apocalyptic texts, it starts by describing a bunch of terrible things often things that have already begun to happen at that time. Jesus warns them that they will be persecuted and tried. Families will betray one another. A major event will cause people to flee and cause great suffering. And there will be false messiahs who can even perform miracles. We tend to think of the word apocalyptic 
as about the destruction itself. But it comes from the Greek word, the Greek verb, apocalypto, which means to uncover. So the word apocalypse means revelation, like the aptly named apocalyptic final book of the Bible. So close that time. Four times. <laughs> this chapter features a lot of doom and gloom, but the point of apocalyptic literature is to point to the hope, the turning of the tide, the return of the king. Our passage starts here, when they are given signs to watch for and hope that their savior will return. So we have to put on our hope-colored glasses. After the suffering, he tells the disciples that the sky will be darkened and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. This is almost a direct quote from Daniel 7:13. He will come with great power and glory, and he will collect the elect from all corners of creation. Biblical scholar Cain Hope Felder assures us that for Mark, this election was not determined by ethnic or racial criteria, and it was not the restrictive group that many modern Calvinists hold. It is an inclusion that should comfort us, as I think Calvin originally intended. Jesus points back to the fig tree, reminding them that all their suffering will be a sign that he is near at the very gates. And here he says the phrase that most struck me when I chose this text. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Is that so? We have to look a bit farther to see how complicated it really is, because immediately after he says this, Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Stay alert and be on duty until I return, whenever that might be. This passage gives me whiplash. And not just because he changes the time frame so abruptly. It's a complicated, layered text that contradicts a lot of the ideas we have about Jesus as well. For example, most of the stories of Jesus, people expected a Messiah who was a warrior, who would come and conquer Rome and bring them back to full power, as the people of God. But he was the, the Messiah they did not expect. The Prince of Peace, the Lamb, not the Lion. And yet here he refers to coming with great power and glory, as if that Messiah will still be coming. So it's hard to say if that is something Jesus says or something the people are still hoping for. Throughout Mark, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, usually referencing something immediate. In Mark 2, he refers to his ability to forgive right before he heals a man. And then he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath as he's defending healing this man on the Sabbath. Every other time that he uses the phrase, he is referring to his own death and resurrection. Here it is unclear to scholars if Jesus was referring to himself or to another Messiah figure. If he is following his own pattern in the Gospel of Mark, the words about the sun being darkened and the powers of heaven being shaken could refer to his crucifixion. Mark depicts the sky going dark from noon to 3 p.m., and Matthew says that the earth shook, which some geologists have found evidence of. There are very few New Testament references to the Son of Man outside of the Gospels. They do appear in other Gospels. 
But there are no references in the earliest texts like Paul's letters. If Jesus had actually said it as liberally as he does in the Gospels, scholars believe we would see it repeated in early texts as part of the vernacular of early Christians. So it's very likely that Mark added this direct quote from Daniel. If Jesus was referring to his own death and resurrection as his coming in glory, it would happen during their lifetimes, especially as the events of Palm Sunday directly precede this chapter. So why then does Jesus make another reference to an unknown time and place, referencing a man who goes on a journey and leaves his servants to keep faithful watch for his return? An essay by Dennis MacDonald explores the idea that Jesus, or at least Mark, is alluding to parallels in Homer's The Odyssey, which was written around 75 BC. The servants in the Odyssey are diligent as they await the return of King Odysseus and the faithful are rewarded. Jesus' prediction also mirrors Odysseus, who says he will return when there is no moon in the night sky. And like Odysseus, Jesus is a king who returned to a people who had trouble recognizing him. We can't know exactly what words Jesus used or what he might have been referencing or not referencing, But studying this text has allowed me to appreciate just a few of the layers and meanings that it holds. I've always struggled with apocalyptic passages of scripture, but this one in particular seems to force us to choose between a hope that is present or a hope that is yet to come. Most people assume that Jesus was referring to both his resurrection and a second triumphal return. And most commentaries on this passage focus on the far-off hope. That Jesus will one day return and bring everything to fruition, fixing our troubled world and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. I understand why this type of hope is so inspiring to us. When we look at the world around us, even as people of privilege, we know that this is not the redeemed world that God intended. We know it in our bones. And like children, we long for someone to come and heal all of our pain, to end genocide and war, famine and apartheid, discrimination and dehumanization, and evil in all its forms. But I worry about this type of hope, the hope of one day, though I know that it often brings the most hope to believers who are marginalized. After all, Jesus was ministering to an oppressed people as an oppressed person. Jewish Palestinians were living under Roman occupation. They were seen as less than Roman citizens who would never be subjected to a death as humiliating as crucifixion. We know that Jesus was probably poor. His dad was a lowly carpenter, and we don't hear about Joseph after Jesus is a teenager so Mary might have been widowed fairly young. Jesus was also a nomadic preacher, which is a very nice way of saying that he experienced homelessness. When he wasn't taken in and fed by patrons, he and his disciples picked food from the fields, relied on the generosity of strangers, and slept in their boats. I know that this type of hope is powerful and important, It is a beacon of light in a dark world, especially for the oppressed. But at its worst, 
This type of hope has also been a justification for people of privilege to do nothing in the face of injustice or even participate in oppression because our earthly lives and bodies don't matter. Even at best, I worry that far off hope gives us an excuse to stop looking for hope in the now. We take off our hope colored glasses and let ourselves be overwhelmed by the darkness and fear of our world. We take off our hope colored glasses because there's not much we can do anyway. We take off our hope colored glasses because God's got the whole world in God's hands. We can also choose present hope. If that's the case, then all of this did happen in the disciples lifetime and they might have missed it. I just personally can't believe that all this time Christ is waiting for the world to get bad enough to save it. I can't believe that God would allow the horrors in our world because the clock says it's not time yet. So I wonder, have we been missing it all this time? Have we simply failed to notice the hope, the Christ in our midst? Are we waiting for a return that has been unfolding before us all this time? Amen. (laughs) Jesus told his disciples that when we are suffering, when the world is falling apart, when the darkness seems too deep, God is at the very gates. But in the end, we don't have to choose just one interpretation of scripture, as confusing as that might be. Howard Thurman offers us a model of reconciliation, which he applied to the Christ of experience and the Jesus of history, or you might think of them as Jesus divine and Jesus fully human. The former is what he calls the creative synthesis of all the longings of the human spirit. And the latter is a plotting goodness in the midst of ordinary difficulties that lifts the hope of the moral and the ethical. He says they need not be two different experiences. They may be a single aspect of one dynamic religious dedication. It's a model that we can follow, longing for a redemption that we believe is not yet realized, while also working as agents of hope to bring the kingdom of God nearer now. So I encourage you this Advent season to put on your hope-colored glasses and take a look around. Because we don't know when Christ might return, or if Christ already has, but we know that Christ came into the world as light in the darkness. He conquered death and rose again in glory. And he charged us to carry the light of Christ into the world. Amen.